You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Two weeks after a terror attack by Hamas, and two weeks into a devastating retaliatory bombing campaign by Israel, thousands of lives are gone. And the world wonders how and when the horror might stop. This is a pattern that has played out many times in this region. There are calls for a humanitarian pause, a ceasefire, de-escalation. It seems impossible in the moment, but then it usually does. So today, a brief history of ceasefires, peace deals, and other quests for a pause in this deadly conflict, and an explanation from a longtime observer of how they come together or don't. How far away might a ceasefire be right now? What needs to happen? Who brings what to the table? How can Israel possibly back down now? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Randa Sleem is the director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Hello, Dr. Sleem. Hello. Hi. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start by asking, because you've studied this region for a long time, what conditions are needed here in the current situation to have a ceasefire? Well, I mean, this is going to be hard to predict at this point, partly because, I mean, most of the non-Western world has been calling for a ceasefire. There was a resolution advanced by Brazil last week at the United Nations Security Council calling for a humanitarian pause, and it was approved by, you know, I think 12 members voted for it, two abstained, and then only one country was against it, which is the United States. So, these conditions are hard. I mean, they are right now, there are conditions for a ceasefire. I think the death toll in, in Gaza, the potential destruction of, a, of the whole strip, if this rate of attacks and bombardment continues, we are looking at the potential tent city, Gaza becoming a tent city with, who knows, half a million of dead and injured. So, uh, so already there are conditions. However, uh, we see the two countries that have the most influence on whether there will be a ceasefire or not is Israel, of course, which has until now said they they are going to reply. And uh, we don't know whether this is going to take the form of a ground incursion, how big the ground invasion, is it going to be the whole strip or is it going to be just the northern part? The fact that they have been asking Palestinians to move from the north to the south shows that maybe they are focusing now on a limited incursion. Mm. Still, it's going to have a humongous death toll, uh, even the limited incursion. So, and then the United States. The United States is clear from the beginning, said they have unconditional support for Israel. And President Biden has said Israel has the right to defend itself. Right. But then also we are hearing in, in at the same time, we are hearing um, President Biden during his visit to Israel, cautioning Israel about what kind of response, how they're going to proceed, what's going to be the day after. And now we are hearing more and more discussions taking place between the Americans and the Israelis in closed rooms, you know, about uh, maybe giving diplomacy more of a time, especially to get more hostages released. 
As you look back at the history of this conflict in this region, do you have a sense of whether or not there are times when peace becomes either more or less possible and, and things shift? Look, if we look at the 1973 war, which was a totally different kind of war than what we are we, ha- we are facing today, it was an interstate war, Israel, Jordan, Egypt. You know, one of the outcomes of, of the war was peace negotiations, which led to the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel and later between Jordan and Israel. I mean, in Lebanon, for example, in 2006, uh, during the Israeli Hezbollah war in South Lebanon, it took, what, 41 days before the United uh, Nations Security Council came together and approved for a resolution that puts an end to the war and put uh, United Nations uh, peacekeeping forces on the border and, you know, gave them a limited mandate at the time, Hmm. but gave them still, you know. And it was after 41 days where you had parts of Beirut, especially the southern suburbs, which is mostly controlled by Hezbollah, pretty much leveled, you know. I mean, I happened to go to that area shortly after the war. And it reminded me of picture I've seen of Stalingrad during the Second World War. Hmm. But that was part, a smaller part of one city. I, I, I hate to imagine what a ground incursion uh, with the carpet bombing that we are seeing will mean for Gaza, you know, a place of 2.2 million people and a smaller area, you know. And so I hate to imagine the worst case scenario there. What about Netanyahu and the Likud party? They've been in power on and off uh, for decades now. How do they typically engage with peace talks? Look, when it comes to Palestinians, the Netanyahu government and Prime Minister Netanyahu himself has been opposed and has tried their best to basically put one roadblock after the other to uh, enter into serious negotiations with the Palestinian Authority. I'm not talking about Hamas. I'm saying the Palestinian Authority, which is the representative, the official representative of the Palestinian people, to enter into serious talks with them into a two-state solution, which every country, including the United States, keeps saying it's the only pathway forward. You know, and, and we have to understand how Hamas, you know, came about. It was very much a, a for the last 15, 16 years since Hamas took over uh, control of the Gaza Strip in uh, 2007. It was a useful tool for the Netanyahu government and Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu himself to basically say to the world, OK, you are pushing me to go into negotiations, but who am I going to negotiate with? The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, on one hand, is not representative of all of the Palestinian and is weak and is getting weaker, thanks, in fact, over time to the settlements, uh, policies of right-wing uh, groups in Israel. And then, on the other hand, we have a terrorist entity ruling Hamas. So Hamas became a useful tool used by the Israeli government to prevent any kind of traction on the two-state solution. Going forward, I don't know, you know, how this can be sustained. You know, Israel can go with all the force it wants. It has the objective of eradicating Hamas, but then the question is at what cost and what's going to come after. You know, if we look at at Lebanon, in 1982, there was the major incursion, invasion of Lebanon by Israel with the stated objective at the time of uh, of basically uprooting, you know, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, presence in Lebanon and stop any kind of threat coming from the PLO toward northern Israel. Fine, the Palestinians left Lebanon, but then what came in their in their place? Hezbollah. 
Hezbollah was created in 1982, which is now a much, much po more potent and stronger enemy of Israel. So Israel has to think, you know, yes, we can get rid of Hamas today, but what's going to come after? And the idea of eradicating, you know, as Israeli officials keep stating their objective to be in, in going forward, eradicating an organization like Hamas I think it is an unrealistic objective. You know, mm -hmm. you can kill many leaders of Hamas, but you are not going to be able to eradicate an organization that has been placed for 17 years in, in Gaza. So, I, I mean, Israel has to think hard and hard about what is their objective in, in Gaza going forward. Well, what do we know at this point about uh, the prospect of that ground invasion that you mentioned? You know, we reported on this Last week, when it seemed like an invasion uh, was imminent, obviously that didn't happen. It seems to be continually pushed back. Why might that be? I think there is difference of opinion inside Israel's war cabinet. We know that two former Israeli generals, you know, have joined the war cabinet in addition to Netanyahu and some of the right-wing uh, ministers. And so I think there are differences of opinion inside the cabinet about the objective and how to go about achieving that objective on one hand. But there is also pressure by the United States, which was aired publicly during President Biden's visit to Israel. And in fact, more emphasized since then in interviews that President Biden have given to, for example, you know, CBS 60 Minutes, as well as announcement by different cabinet members. Uh, a push, for example, on Israel to think hard about what kind of incursion, what will be the cost, and what will come after. And then there is the big fear, which is of potential escalation. We have seen Hezbollah, you know, engage in limited escalation with Israel on the Israeli-Lebanese border. I mean, there is also the concern in, in Israel, especially within the Israeli cabinet, that a big ground incursion might upend all the peace agreement they have struck with Egypt and Jordan on one hand, but also the normalization agreement that they have done with countries in the Gulf through the Abraham Accords. You know, at some point, if this becomes too bloody, too violent, many of these countries, I don't think they are going to go for the, you know, option of, of, of stopping this agreement, but there will be a lot of public pressure on them inside their countries and in the rest of the Arab region to basically seize relations with Israel, to, you know, at, at least stop the normalization train that we have seen in the, in the past few months unfold in the region between, for example, United Arab Emirates and Israel, between Bahrain and Israel. So that's, I think, another concern for Israel. What will be the impact of a big invasion in, of the Gaza Strip on these kind of agreement? Will they, you know, upend them? What about from the perspective of Hamas? Obviously, the Israelis can unleash total devastation on Gaza. Is this kind of horrific bloodshed not, to some extent, what they were after in the first place? Why would they come to a table? Look, Hamas has won already by, you know, in October 7, as far as they think. Let me start here by saying that I condemn uh, the Hamas attack and the kind of, you know, carnage they unleashed in on October 7, and the, especially the, also on top of it, the taking of civilian hostages. There is no reason whatsoever for anybody, any party to take civilians as hostages. There is no reason whatsoever. But in, in terms of their mind, they've already achieved what the objective, which is basically, you know, upend, upend uh, what Israel thought 
as being its deterrence, right. that there's no such deterrence. Uh, and, and, and what they've done October 7 showed that kind of barrier which Israel supposedly protected on its border with the Strip has been breached uh, on, on, on a number of points and led to what we have seen on October 7. Going forward, listen, I mean, they have leadership. Most of their political leadership is outside Gaza. It's in Doha, it's in, you know, different places in the region. So they're going to survive as a political leadership. And the, the higher the death toll, the higher the violence, the Israeli violence, the higher the carpet bomb, the more, the wider the carpet bombing by Israel, uh, the more of a victim Hamas will, will come through in, uh, to Palestinians, but also in the rest of the region. In the meantime, I want to ask you about what's happening uh, in the occupied West Bank, because since October 7th, dozens of Palestinians have been killed there, but Hamas does not rule over that territory. Can you kind of explain what's happening? Well, I mean, not only dozens have been killed in the West Bank, but thousands have been arrested by Israeli forces. And about seven communities, you know, Arab Bedouin communities have been emptied of their population because of acts uh, by settlers, uh, violent acts against them, shooting people, uh, threatening them, uh, you know, subjecting them to torture and abuse. And so you have already seven communities that have, you know, left. It's going to be very hard on President Abbas and the rest of the leadership of the, uh, you know, PA, the Palestinian Authority, which rules over the West Bank to really restrain the people there from engaging in another uprising. Already we have had two uprisings, Intifada, in the West Bank against settler policies, against settlements, against, you know, Israelis' government's unwillingness to engage in negotiation that uh, provide a pathway to citizenship and statehood for Palestinians. And so, again, uh, what happens in Gaza is going to affect and is already affecting the public mood in the West Bank. And then Israel will not only be fighting in Gaza, but also they will have another front in the West Bank emerging that they have to contend with. Add to that the potential of a regional escalation. Uh, we have already seen Hezbollah escalate, you know, on its border with Israel and, Isra you know, Israel and Hezbollah engaging in mutual escalation. We have seen attacks by Iraqi militias on U.S. bases in Iraq on U.S. bases in Syria. We have seen, you know, missiles launched by Houthis in Yemen. You know, all of these are members of what's called the resistance axis. In addition to Hamas, Islamic Jihad, you have Hezbollah, you have Iraqi militias, and you have, um, you know, the Houthis. And they are all part of this axis, which is funded and trained and, uh, and supported by Iran. And so there is a potential for this, if not contained, to really lead into a major, major war. However, there is also pressure on Israel, but also inside pressure in Israel on thinking through the next steps and, and thinking through, again, the day after, if, you were, if they were able to eliminate or to kick all of Hamas from the Gaza Strip, who's going to come after? More, maybe more radical organization? So, and, you know, when, President, when Prime Minister Netanyahu supposedly was asked by President Biden during his visit to Israel, do you have a plan for the day after? And according to press report, the Israeli, you know, official said, no, we don't have a plan yet. We are not there yet. And so I think that's, that's where the debate is right now. In terms of internal Israeli politics, how is this playing out for Netanyahu? Because I was uh, surprised to discover, I guess, that while the United States and others are offering him their full support, the situation is less clear within the people of Israel. What's the dynamic there? 
already Israel has been mired into, you know, internal strife, uh, internal debate about the judicial packages, which at the time Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to pass. You know, we have seen hundreds of thousands of Israeli demonstrate against uh, the cabinet, against the prime minister, Israeli prime minister for the last, uh, you know, many months. So I think right now there is a lot of people that are, of course, saying the buck stops with you. You know, many people are calling for his resignation, Mm -hmm. blaming him, you know, or asking him to take responsibility for this intelligence failure, military failure that is behind the success of Hamas on October 7 in its attack uh, on Israel. And and, and I think uh, there are many also, remember, families of the hostages, 200 some hostages, including some Americans, who are still now in the Gaza Strip under, you know, taken by Hamas on October 7. I think many of their families, many of people saying, you know, you need to give space for diplomacy to get these hostages released because once this ground incursion happens, once this ground invasion happens, you know, who knows what kind of retribution Hamas will exact on these hostages as a way of responding to the Israeli uh, invasion. And But that at the same time, you have the more extremist radical right wing in Israeli polity. They are represented in the Israeli war cabinet by two ministers who basically are calling, you know, this is an opportunity for Israel to go after all its enemies, not only against Hamas, but also against Hezbollah in Lebanon, but also against Iran. And so a potential hit on Iran is something that I bet many, I mean, some people in the Israeli cabinet, not necessarily the military, are also exploring as part of their response. What would you look for as a first step towards a ceasefire uh, or towards at least turning down the violence? Does it need to start with concessions from one side or the other, the returning of hostages? Would anybody surrendering make a difference here? I'm just trying to look at if a way out of this right now is even possible. Look, I think the humanitarian pause, which was considered in the United Nations Security Council and vetoed down by the Americans last week, was a good first step. So I think we need to get there. And while there is this humanitarian pause, then there are there need to be intensive negotiations on release of all civilian hostages. I don't think Hamas will release the military hostages because they have taken soldiers, you know, as hostages as as well as civilians. Hmm. But I think right now the negotiations on the release of hostages done by Qatar, by other countries that still have channels to, to Hamas leadership is basically on the release of all civilian hostages. And I think that's that's the right step. And that's going to be accompanied by increasing the pace of humanitarian assistance that's being, you know, passed into Gaza from Egypt. We have seen like 20 trucks two days ago going through. We have seen more trucks coming through, but still these are nothing uh, in terms of the needs of Gaza. For example, I'll give you an idea. On a day before before all of this happened, 400 to 450 trucks usually go through the Rafah border into Gaza. Only 20 trucks went through. So, and this is at a time when there is a total siege on Gaza, no electricity, no water, no fuel, no medicine, no food. And so I think you have to do these, how would say, concomitant steps. You know, on one hand, you have to have a humanitarian pause, more humanitarian relief going into Gaza and release of civilian hostages. And then that opens a diplomatic space for negotiations. What will you be watching for first or what are you looking for right now? I'm looking for whether we see more hostages released. It looks like there is a potential of more civilian hostages to be released. So, and then if this, again, humanitarian assistance can be sustained and increased going forward. And then I'm I'm also looking at the speeches and the messaging coming from the U.S. administration. It's very clear that 
while they are still committed for, you know, Israel's right to defend to defense itself and providing support wherever it's needed, uh, I think they are recently, in the last day or so, they have been, you know, pushing more the idea of release of hostages as that should be the priority and not necessarily the incursion, that the incursion can wait, can be delayed until we have more of the civilian hostages released. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, also, I'm looking at what other members of the resistance axis are doing, especially Hezbollah in, 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 in Lebanon and also the Iraqi militias in Right now, everybody, you know, every party in this conflict, you know, Israel, Hamas, uh, allies of Hamas are all messaging each other. America is, they are all messaging each other. And the purpose of this messaging is to help shape the calculus of their opponent in terms of the next steps. You know, the Hezbollah, Iran, Iraqi militias are basically escalating on limited escalation to basically help shape the Israeli calculus about the cost of an invasion. Israel, on the one hand, threatening to have like wreak major havoc in Lebanon if Hezbollah were to escalate more, threatening eradication of Hamas is again aimed at shaping the calculus of that other side about the cost of escalation. And the United States, by sending you know, aircraft carriers in the region, putting 2,000 Marines in the, in the region, sending even more uh, defense missile systems. Again, it's trying to message the calculus of the Iran-led camp, saying there will be costs if you were to escalate or open other fronts against Israel. Everybody now is trying to shape the escalation calculus of the other. Dr. Slim, thank you for this. I understand a lot better than I did yesterday what it'll take to get out of this. Thank you very much, and good to be with you again. Dr. Randa Sleem, Director of Conflict Resolution at the Middle East Institute. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always get in touch with us, whether it's with a question, a comment, feedback, a story suggestion, anything you like, we're always available. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can talk to us via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave us a voicemail. That number is 416-935-5935. If you've listened this far, you probably like this show. At least we hope you do. So you might like our new show. It's called In This Economy. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You can set yourself up with a free subscription or follow us or whatever your podcast app wants you to do. And you'll start getting brand new episodes every week, November 2nd. In This Economy. And once again, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.